broadcasting under the night sky from the edge of an undisclosed jungle on the Gulf of Mexico. I'm Christopher Garitano, your voice in the night. For the next hour, allow me to be your guide into the bizarre unknown, the fantastic macabre, and together we'll journey to that borderland between fiction and reality, a place beyond all rational explanation. We are now off to the witch. You are a bold and courageous person, afraid of nothing. High on a hilltop near your home, there stands a dilapidated old mansion. Some say the place is haunted, but you don't believe in such myths. One dark and stormy night, a light appears in the topmost window in the tower of the old house. You decide to investigate, and you never return. That was the introduction to a vintage record titled Walt Disney's Chilling Thrilling Sounds of the Haunted House, originally published in 1964 and still in print as an LP to this day. It's a collection of altogether ominous, humorous, and bizarre sound effects meant to be played on Halloween night or if you were just looking for a good scare. For me, it was the foundation of Fright Entertainment, and it first sparked my curiosity leading to an obsession with the idea that an ordinary house could be a doorway to realms beyond the grave. The artwork on the album cover is a perfect rendition of a spooky haunted abode, an old mansion by a cemetery on a cold, dark, and stormy night, with deep shades of black and complementary colors of dark blue. There's one lone attic window, glowing like a dying ember in orange. Is it fiction or reality? Home is meant to be a place of sanctuary, but sometimes uninvited visitors from the unknown enter without warning. Tonight's guests live on that borderline between fiction and truth, and they tell tales of their experiences as both a form of therapy and entertainment. You'll hear a collection of their personal ghost stories after this commercial break. After these messages, we'll be right back. You are listening to the Off to the Witch podcast, where we explore that bizarre borderline between fiction and reality and all subjects arcane. Journey over to my YouTube channel and subscribe now at youtube.com slash at off to the witch for a variety of extras and special features, including the off to the witch mini docs with further insights on many of the latest episodes, as well as previews and behind the scenes of my forthcoming investigative series off to the witch presents, as well as the anniversary edition of my motion picture documentary Montauk Chronicles and follow us on social media. All links are available at linktree.com slash garitano7, G-A-R-E-T-A-N-O-7. And stay tuned for more Off to the Witch. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
Within this old house live two residents. One of them is John Russell, composer, professor. The other has been dead for over 70 years. Claire, I'd like to talk to you about the house. Many films will frighten you, but only a few can really terrify you. The Changeling, an experience beyond total fear. to Off to the Witch, I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and tonight's first tale is told by the late Stanton LaVey, who died only a month after this interview was recorded. Stanton recalled his time in the infamous Black House in San Francisco. It was owned by his grandfather, Anton LaVey, the creator of Satanism and the author of the Satanic Bible. Stanton was only a child back then, and one dark night, something appeared to him while he was alone in his bedroom. I'm, I'm very much a believer in the mystic and the metaphysical uh, aspects of reality. Um, I've had far too many uh, of what one might call supernatural experiences that defy uh, scientific reality, at least in terms of uh, what is commonly believed. And, um, and there's no way to unexperience these things. Uh, I'm not going to go into them right now. I don't think this is the the time for them, but, but um, just one example, because it ties into my relationship with Anton. Um, my first major uh, experience with the spirit realm was when I was, uh, I was a little boy. I think I was maybe four years old. Um, I couldn't sleep. I was having a difficult time sleeping and I had just managed to fall asleep when my door, the door to my bedroom swung open and, and in the doorway was a figure, a, a large male figure with a wide brimmed hat filling up uh, the, the bulk of the doorway, a silhouette, a silhouetted figure. And it just wavered there. It didn't move forward or back. And it just stood there wavering with the light from the, the dim light from the hallway behind it. And there was no mistaking it for what it was. I could make it out clear, very clearly. And I was wide awake and it startled me to the point that I fell off my bed and I asked it what it wanted. I asked it who it was and it wouldn't answer. 
and then I demanded that it go away, and it closed my door, and immediately upon my door closing, there was an earthquake, uh, a, a large enough earthquake that it woke my family up, and my grandmother came running to my room from across the hallway where I had seen this thing, and my mother from around the corner, and my grandfather even came up the steps to check on us, and this is what uh, signified to me that it wasn't my grandfather standing in the doorway, which was my first sort of skeptical approach to it, that it might have been my grandfather. Um, of course, when the earthquake happened, I immediately knew that it wasn't my grandfather, and then when Anton began coming up the steps, I knew for certain that it hadn't been Anton. Um, and I approached Anton about it the next day, and uh, and he didn't have an explanation for it, and he felt and I could tell that he was frustrated with the fact that he didn't have an explanation for it. Um, he said that it must have been something that was meant just for me to experience alone, uh, and that that this apparition must have uh, had must have been signaling something, or it meant something symbolically um, that was for me to understand and me alone. And uh, but it but the earthquake did happen and, and it happened immediately when my door was closed. Um, and that's not something that I take lightly. That's, that's a serious experience. Um, and I've had other experiences that, that parallel it in ways where it, it, it ties into reality in such a way that it can't be refuted. And, um, and with witnesses, uh, you know, more even more so when there's been times when I've experienced things with people present to witness things happening. Um, there's no getting away from it uh, or denying it. This next story was recorded on location at the very real May Stringer Haunted Mansion, located in Brooksville, Florida. Its caretaker, Bonnie Letourneau, recalls the very first time she experienced one of the many ghosts who live inside the old house. What was it about the house that grabbed you? Three weeks after I started here, um, it was a Saturday afternoon and uh, it was closing time. So I sent my nine-year-old daughter upstairs to turn out the lights. And I could hear her sneakers going from room to room, but I heard a second set of footsteps. And these were little shoes going pat, pat, pat. And pretty soon my daughter's sneakers were going a little faster. And the little shoes were going a little faster. And my daughter came flying down the front staircase and looked at me and said, Mama, don't ever make me go anywhere in this house by myself again. Okay, the second set of shoes. So there was absolutely nobody in this house. Right, it was just my daughter and me. For sure, for absolutely. certain. Absolutely. And I, my daughter said that to me, and I said, um, I heard. I heard footsteps. She goes, never mind that, Mama. There's a little girl on the second floor, and she was grabbing the back of my leg. And that was it. My daughter came because she had to, <laughs> because she was nine. But believe me, as soon as she didn't have to come here anymore, she doesn't come. <laughs> See, okay, so we've seen scenes like this and read ghost stories throughout the ages. Um, but when you're actually, because I've had a, an experience, can you describe what it's like to truly be in that situation, to be here by, well, with your daughter, just you and your daughter in this big old house? 
And were they and were they the footsteps of a little girl? Or yes, were they? Okay. it was a child, wow. and she was scampering around on the second floor, and my daughter could actually see her. Um, I don't see spirit. I just feel them, hear them, smell them, talk to them. And what was the feeling that you had? Was it a feeling of sadness? Was it? Um... No, uh, that one was. I was very surprised. <laughs> I had no idea until that moment that there was more going on in the May Stringer House than just a little history. That's amazing. So that was your very first experience right. with the little girl. And it continued from there. And you signed on to be a, a caretaker after that or a tour guide? Uh, yeah, I'm a member of the Museum Association and I was a volunteer docent tour guide. Um, I also worked at all the major events. We do fundraisers to, because we're nonprofit, we have to continually raise the money to keep the doors open. And so I volunteered at those events. And it was at one event that we were approached to um, have an investigation here. And what year was that? Uh, it was about 2002. Okay, so before 2002, though, there were people that had experiences here. Oh yes, absolutely. The, the house was rescued from demolition. It, it was condemned in 1979. And once the Museum Association was formed and purchased the property, re, uh, restoration began. And it was, the house was in very bad shape. The plaster was off the walls, the porches had fallen off the building. It was, it was an extensive restoration. Well, volunteers, certain volunteers <laughs> would not come here unless other volunteers were gonna be here because they had already had experiences while they were doing res restoration work. Had you heard any of their stories before you heard the little girl? No, I knew nothing about this, nothing whatsoever. And it, ghost hunting wasn't popular then. There was no ghost hunters on TV. So having that first experience was like, okay, maybe I can explain this away, but Shortly after that, I had the next experience, and it continued. And just before we go there, when you were younger, when you were a girl, had you had any um, psychic experiences, paranormal experiences? Um, I was super afraid of the dark as a young child, and I was convinced that there were shadow people in my room and I, I had to sleep with the light on or the shadow people would come. That's my earliest recollection. I was maybe four. Yeah, I wonder, you know, children seem to attract a lot of... Well, they have no shields. Sure. They're wide open. So if, if there's a monster under your bed or in the closet, there really is and they can see it. It's, it's the grown-ups that have all of the shields and... and, and They've been taught over the years not to believe that reality, especially your first encounter. After that, you get used to it. Um, I can sit here for hours when the museum is open and I can see Dr. Stringer going back and forth from his office to the dining room, which is what he did all his life because he practiced here and the family was on this side and he'd go back and forth between patients. And it's... It upsets other people to see it, but to me, it's part of the fabric of this house. Dave Spinks worked in law enforcement for many years before he retired and became a full-time investigator of the unknown. 
The story he's about to tell is one of the reasons why he's dedicated his life to paranormal investigation. The, the next profound experience I had personally was when I was in state corrections. Oftentimes, we'd have to take inmates to hospitals for treatment for various diseases, illnesses, whatever, you know. And a lot of times these guys would die because their bodies were so trashed from doing so much drugs and everything else that they had major medical issues. So uh, this one particular guy, he had had a heart attack. And I one of my jobs was... Um, I would transport, like I said, inmates to hospitals and everything. So when I was on transport duty, I'd run these guys out, you know, and if they had to go out by ambulance, then we have to have a guy in the ambulance with them. And then there's another chase car behind them, you know? So in this particular situation, I got, I had just come back from a a court run and I got the call on the radio that a guy was going out in in the ambulance. So I had to go down there and dress him out and everything. You know, you have to search him and put him in different clothes and and um, cuff him up and everything. Belly chain, handcuffs, and, and leg shackles. So as I'm doing this, I'm talking to the guy, and he was telling me all about he, he didn't feel right yesterday. He thought he might have had a heart attack, but they just gave him some, uh, uh, like, milk of magnesia and sent him back to his cell. Well, he came back, and he had all the signs the next day of a heart attack. So they were sending him out to the hospital. As I'm talking to this guy, he literally like had a massive heart attack right in front of me where his whole body seized up, his face turned blood red and his tongue popped out of his mouth as the ambulance was getting there and started loading him on the gurney. And, and the, the guy, even the, even the EMT guys looked at me and mouthed the words, he's faking it. And then he looked back at him again as he started looking at him. He started pumping his chest. And he looked back and he said, no, he's not faking it. <laughs> so we loaded him up, got him on the road real quick, as fast as we could, and got him down to the hospital. So we're in there with the guy. And they're working on him. And, you know, the, during the whole ambulance ride, they tried to trach him and everything. And, they, you know, he was already dead. He, his heart basically exploded right in front of us. And they worked on him for a good hour, and uh, he died. So when that happens... One of us has to go out and call our bosses and start, you know, telling them all what happened. And the other guy has to sit in the room with them until the doctor comes in, pronounces him legally dead. Uh, and there's this whole process that takes place. Right. So I'm sitting in the room with the guy, the nurses and doctors pronounce him dead and they turn off all the lights except for the little light above his bed. You know, there's, you know, those little fluorescent lights that you keep behind your bed in the hospital rooms. So a few minutes is going by. And that just this weird, ominous feeling comes over me in the room and the light starts buzzing and flickering behind his bed. And I'm like, man, it feels weird in here. It it was almost like time slowed down for, you know, it, it seemed like everything started moving in slow motion. And I noticed this giant shadow figure looking thing in the in the corner. It was darker than the dark room. The dark the room wasn't totally dark because the little fluorescent light was in the room on, but it was buzzing and flickering and making this weird flashing stuff thing. And I look, started looking closer at this shadow thing, and it was like 10 to 12 feet tall. And I noticed that it was smoky in nature and it was undulating. And I'm like, what in the frick is that? So, I mean, I got, I could feel the ominous feeling in the room. So I stood up and I'm thinking there's somebody in the room with me and I'm, you know, my, I'm trying to like 
like rub my eyes and make sure I'm seeing what I'm seeing. And I know there's no other people in the room because I watched them all leave, all the nurses and doctors. So I stand up and I got my hand on my pistol and I'm like, hey, who's in here? You know, but I can see and I can see this shadow figure thing over in the corner of the room. And this is a big room and it's all separate from the normal hospital rooms because the, the prisons usually have a contract area with the hospitals and they keep them separate from the general hospital population. So I reach back with my other hand, with my left hand, and I'm feeling for the light switch, right? And it's starting to feel really just heavier and heavier. I have this weird, just horrible feeling in there. And I flick the light switch on and the shadow is gone. It's not there anymore. So I'm like, man, I must be tired. Because I, I think I was on a double shift that day, too. I was like, man, I'm really tired. I need to go home and go to sleep. So, you know, I sat back down, turned the light back off. And... I'm looking at the guy's body. Of course, they got him covered up, you know, with the sheet. And this white, misty, smoky, whatever you want to call it, starts coming out of his chest. And I'm like, what in the hell is going on here? And I said, I must be losing my mind right now. And um, I start standing up again. And I hear this far off voice say, no, I don't want to go like that. And I'm like, holy crap. And I reach up to flick the light on again. And it's all buzzing and stuff in there. That 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 fluorescent light's going zzz, zzz, and it's, you know, flickering. And it's just like time is in slow motion. I finally get the light turned on because I'm fluttering around with my hand trying to find the light switch, never taking my eye off of this, this, this dead guy here. And I just as I flicked the light on, my partner kicks open the door, said, "Hey, I'm back," and I, I you know, like that, and uh, it scared me to death. I almost jumped out of my boot, boots, and I said, "I got to take a break," and I ran out of there. And while he watched him, so I'm thinking, "What in the hell did I just?" It was almost like the Grim Reaper came to collect this guy, and he said, "No, I don't want to go," you know, and it was this most bizarre freaking experience. Uh, and that really shook me up too, you know, for a little while. Because Did anybody else around you at that time experience? No, I was in the room by myself because everybody else knew he was dead, and I was just doing my job guarding him. I had to guard him until our boss got there. I mean, that's what we do. So when I came back, you know, after I ran in the bathroom and washed my face with cold water, and I was like, man, I, am I tired here? What is going on? And I just, you know, it was just the most bizarre thing. And, uh, I knew it was real, though. I could feel it. You know, you could feel the ominousness of it, the heaviness. And the, it was like he was going to go somewhere bad because of all the bad things he had done. Allie Bennett was only a little girl when she realized that she not only has a profound psychic perception, but also that strange apparitions from beyond were haunting her and her entire family. So the other story that I have was back at the Hell House is what I'll call it. Um, we were all getting ready to go to bed and, um, I remember going upstairs and running a bath because I was going to take a bath and I got in the bathtub. I was probably like 15 maybe. And I had always been very afraid of that bathroom because it just didn't feel right. And so when any of us would shower or take a bath in there, we always had somebody else with us in case something happened. And my sister couldn't be in there because she had to go to bed for school. And I told my dad I'd be fine. 
and he was like, okay, we'll scream or something if you need me. And I said, I'd be fine. So I get in the water and not even minutes after that, I felt like something put its hand around my throat and pushed me down underneath of the bath water. And I couldn't scream for my dad because I was under the water, but I was banging on the side of the bathtub and my dad ran in and was trying to lift me out of the water and literally couldn't move me. And my dad's a very strong man. Like he's done construction his whole life. So there would have been no reason why he couldn't have been able to move me. And I remember being pulled out of whatever happened and whatever touched me had left the room because my dad was screaming at it to stop and just looking at my dad and him looking at me. And I'm like, it's not going to stop until it kills one of us. And I think about that day every day as well. It's just, it's just crazy. And, you know, a lot of people, when they hear these stories, the only thing they can associate with are horror films. You know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, but this is real life now. Okay. And if this can be defined in words, because it's difficult and I know, like I'm always exploring this just as somebody who writes fiction and, and is exploring these subjects and I'm getting ready to make a horror film myself. And I'm always trying to find that metaphysical uh, space that is the difference between something supernatural that is that really happens and something that's supernatural that's portrayed in film. If you could articulate that, what what is the difference? Um, rather than magic, there's energy. So I think that, you know, on a lot of like different TV shows and movies with spirits and demons and whatever else, there's always some sort of, you know, magical touch to it. But where I think the difference is, is we don't have magic, we have energy, which is very similar. It just has a different name because our energy exists. It's able to transform it's able to do all kinds of crazy things and that's what i think the difference is if instead of painting the picture with magic is what you know fixes everything or gives something negative power it's just their energy and energy can't be destroyed but it can be transformed just like when people do spells and movies and they have to do it in a particular way to you know undo whatever they did it's the same kind of thing with energy work where you have to do things a certain way. Everything's intention based. And as, you know, human beings and existing here with, you know, an infinite purpose, our energy is very sacred and it's very special. And of course, negative things want a piece of that because they want a piece of that power, just like in movies where, you know, there's a person that has like a magic amulet and something negative wants to steal it away from them because it's powerful, but we are what's powerful. We don't need, you know, the amulets or the magic. It's just us and our energy that makes it different. So when a person is, is feeling this, the energy is transferred. And let's say, and again, I don't want you to sit and relive this, but I, I'm trying to, I want to understand in ways that we haven't really discussed before. Uh, many people don't discuss it this way. And so we go back to that place where you're in the, in the tub and you're attacked. Physiologically, or at least psychologically, you start to feel heavy. 
you start to feel an immense amount of fear. Perhaps you get dizzy. Do you yeah. feel physical forces pushing you in or is it almost like you lose consciousness? Um, so when it first started, I remember just feeling the same kind of pressure as it would have been if something physically would have had its hand on my throat. So it was like same force, same pressure, just the hand wasn't there, but it felt like a hand was there. And then I remember another hand either on my head or my face or something that just pushed me backwards, but I didn't see the hands. I just felt the same kind of pressure as it would have been, you know, if a grown up would have had both of their hands on me at the time, pushing me underneath in the water as hard as they could have. And when I went into the water, it was, I was trying to see whatever was there because I knew if I could see it, then I could get rid of it because if I knew what it was, it'd be easier to get rid of it. And it would never show me what it was because if it would have, I would have known and it didn't want me to know. So I just felt this just darkness and this just the kind of evil where it makes your stomach hurt. And I just, I just remember vividly that it wanted, they just wanted to kill me. That was the only kind of impression or anything I got from it was it wanted me to die. And I still don't know why. I still don't know whatever became of whatever it is, but I think about it all the time. There are those who say that this quiet town holds many secrets. Legend has it that beneath this very tower, a dark force had its eyes set on the children. We were told that what was going on there was for the benefit of humanity. What would you say to the people who say, well, all these children were kidnapped and murdered and you were a part of it. What would you tell them? Would I tell did them? approve of it, but there was nothing I could do about it. They wanted a large number of programmed boys to be used for mind control operations. And there are others who say it's still happening to this day. I don't know, I for myself find it a little suspicious that all the evidence has been conveniently destroyed. Let's put it this way. If you're sitting there with 20 guns pointed at you, what are you going to do? Whatever the hell they want! Watch Montauk Chronicles now for free on Tubi, Plex, Roku, and available for download on Amazon and Apple TV. series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine.
Catherine McGowan is a forensic investigator who perceives with a basis of science and logic. However, she couldn't deny the anomalous nature of several ghostly encounters. Were there any other times that challenged your definition of reality like that one? I did have one case uh, back when I was doing CSI work that was so creepy that uh, myself, my trainer, and two cops, we all just started laughing about it because we didn't know how else to react. We had a cold case that we were given. Long story short, there were there were there were some cheap housing in the suburbs of Vegas, and I'd say three or four years prior, a young man in his late twenties was selling drugs. Apparently, he wasn't a bad kid. He was a nice kid. It's just you know he was poor, and this was a way for him to make money. And his uh, the person he was uh, giving a portion of the money to the, the drug dealer who was higher up than him. Apparently, he owed him some money. So the higher up drug dealer stormed into his home and shot the kid uh, right at the, the doorway between his master bedroom and the master bedroom closet. So the kid was shot in the chest and flew backward and landed on his back in the master bedroom closet and, and died. So we were sent there a few years later to see if we could find uh, any of the guy's DNA or any like remaining traces of blood splatter. Sometimes this is possible. Sometimes it isn't. We were really afraid that these guys had repainted the master bedroom closet. Had they repainted the master bedroom closet, it would have been really difficult to find any proof of, you know, further DNA and further uh, blood collection because uh, the chemicals and the paint would have kind of ruined the whole thing. Luckily, when the kid was murdered, all they did was clean up the the blood in the closet. They didn't repaint. So we were able to use, um, there's a spray called Blue Star, and it, it chemically reacts with blood that has been cleaned up a long time ago. And you can take nighttime photography. So you can shut the closet door, turn off all the lights. And typically, we would use Nikon cameras for crime scene uh, photography. And you can change the settings so you can take pictures in the dark and the the luminol will light up uh, once once the, the flash meets the, the chemical and you can see where the blood splatter was and know where to collect the DNA. You just rub the swab on where you saw the previous blood splatter, even years after it's been cleaned up. Had it been repainted, that would be a different story, but luckily that wasn't the case. Anyway, years later... Uh, the young man, you know, he didn't have any family who was interested in the home or so they sold it to a middle-aged woman and her elderly mother. By the time we arrived in the house, nobody told the woman or her mother why we were there. We basically just gave them a very vague, uh, explanation and said, hi, we're going to be here to collect some DNA from a previous case. Nothing to worry about. We may need to cut a chunk out of your master bedroom wall, but here's the name of an insurance company that will pay for everything. You don't need to worry about paying for it. We'll take care of it. And uh, we, did, we didn't give them any details on what the case was about because we don't want to freak people out and be like, hey, did you know that a drug dealer was murdered in your closet? <laughs> it's, it's not reassuring. And so we just gave them a vague overview and said, hey, this is a cold case. Uh, we're not going to bother you. We'll be in and out, what have you. 
The elderly mother was asleep in a hospital bed in the living room at the time, so she didn't interact with us at all. We did what we were supposed to do. We took the crime scene photos, took a swab, took a chunk out of the wall, uh, put it put it away, and we were going to label it and take it back to, to the office. And there were two police officers with us. They were standing in the master bedroom with us the whole time. They weren't interacting with the woman or her elderly mother. So by the time we were done, we walked out and the elderly mother had woken up and she said, oh, what's this? Like, uh, did, did something happen? And the woman said, no, mom, this is, uh, these are two crime scene investigators and two police officers. They're here because of some cold case. They're, they're just taking like a chunk of our wall and they're, they're leaving, but it'll, it'll get taken care of. And apparently the elder, elderly mother, when she was not sleeping in the living room during the day, she would sleep in the master bedroom. And without missing a beat, she said, are you guys here about that young man? And we all kind of froze and went, what young man? And she said, well, the brunette young man, the one that comes out of my closet at night to talk to me. And the woman looked at her mother and said, mom, what are you talking about? And the woman said, oh, yeah, I've told you this, dear. So that that young man comes out of the closet and sits on the edge of my bed and he'll talk to me at night sometimes. And the woman looked flabbergasted and she stared at us and said, I, the, I'm hearing this for the first time. And the, the woman said, no, I told you, dear, but you didn't believe me. And she said, there is a young man who comes out of the closet periodically and he'll just talk to me. And then he goes back into the closet and disappears. And she said, are you here about him? I think he was killed. And <laughs> we, we all kind of froze and went, oh, well, we're, we're just here to get a sample of the wall and, you know, we, we won't bother you. We're, we're heading out right now. We're leaving. And, you know, you guys have a nice night. And we walked out of the house and it was like dead silent for a second. And I turned to the cops and I said, did you guys tell her anything? And they said, how could we? We were in the bedroom with you guys the whole time. And they, they said, we didn't tell her anything. We didn't. Yeah. And he said, no, no, no. We didn't say anything. And they said, we thought you guys must have said something. And we said, no, we didn't say anything. We were in the closet the whole time. And so we, we were all nervously laughing because that was just... None of us could think of an explanation. Uh, the four of us didn't tell her. It's not like she would have had this information ahead of time because when we were called out to this cold case, it was the day of. It's not like we're given a ton of notice. You're given a call, say, hey, there's a cold case. We want you to collect um, you know, something um, in the closet. They'll tell you what to collect. And then you get in the crime scene van and you drive over there. So it's instantaneous. We didn't have any prior information to this. So why would the family? And that challenges your reality because you thought about it. You're like, there's no way that this woman can know. And she must be telling the truth, or at least about her own experiences. Were there conversation, conversations amongst you and your colleagues after that were a bit more extended than what was said initially about this particular thing? They didn't like to talk about it. Um, again, most of my uh, coworkers were much older than me, so it was different generation. They didn't like to talk about it. I, I felt like with a lot of people my age, they would be animatedly chatting about something like this, but um, there there was kind of more of a conservative attitude among my peers of you know not really discussing anything that would be interpreted as quote unquote silly, even though it was a pretty unexplainable situation that I would have loved to have talked to them about further, but we just, we never really had the chance. When Dex Skarsvog was a child, something from another world attempted to pull him into his bedroom closet. He continued to experience dark entities throughout his life and at many locations. 
Here's just one of his stories. I was born in Casper, Wyoming in 1980 uh, to a single mom. Uh, by the time I was two, we moved out to Washington State out on the West Coast where my sister was born. Pretty average childhood at that point. Eventually, mom got married again, and we had our stepdad around for a while. One of my first memories of anything paranormal was in a blue house we lived in when I was five or six. I'm not sure how old I was, but... Uh, I was laying on my stomach on the floor in my bedroom playing with my cars. And I felt something grab my ankle. And it started pulling me toward the wall and I couldn't scream or anything. I tried and no sound would come out. Uh, my mom ends up walking into the room and whatever had a hold of my ankle just let go. Never saw anything, nothing, but there was a handprint around my ankle. I was scared senseless to sleep in that room after that. I, I don't blame you. At the time, and, and again, that's such an extra, and, and you know, there are other people that have, ha have been a, essentially assaulted by these things in the dark, whatever they are, right? And we'll get into what you think they are or what you perceive that they are. But at that time, and I always ask this question, and it doesn't mean... I want to preface it by saying I'm not suggesting anything you were watching, you know, sparked your imagination for this, but I'm always curious as to what reference point you may have had as a little kid. Cause when I was a little kid, I, I had a head full of horror films and I had a really strange experience when I was like 14. Did you watch any horror films at that age or even classics or anything that when that thing happened to you, it was almost as if a horror movie was coming to life. No, I wasn't allowed to watch horror movies at that point. Uh, I heard a few campfire stories kind of things, but never watched any horror movies or anything like that before that. But I think that experience in particular is what fed my interest into the paranormal so much. Trying to find out exactly what it was and where it came from kind of thing, you know? And did you tell your mother, did you tell anybody that you knew right after what exactly happened? I told my mom as soon as she walked in the room and she just chalked it up to my imagination. Makes you think how many times that has happened to a kid and the parents just say it was all your imagination. In fact, you know, I would, I would press the kid for more questions, of course, because we're open to this thing. And I think a lot of people are these days. And maybe back then it was more like, you know, the kid's making it up. But you were clearly shaken. You must have been crying when that happened, though. No? Yeah, I was very, very scared. And I wouldn't lay on the floor to play with my toys at all after that period. I'd sit on my bed if I was going to play with my toys. And what did you, did you give this thing a name back then? Like, what did you call whatever this was? When that happened to you, did it, did it have a name, the boogeyman or something like that? I just called it something, something that grabbed me. Okay. I didn't really give it a name, a specific name. It was just something that had happened and I didn't know any label to put on it at the time or anything else. And did you fear that this thing was going to come back that let's say the next night and the, or the night after that? I was scared for a long time that it would drag me out of my bed and nobody would come in and it would drag me off to wherever it wanted to take me. 
we moved back to Sumner into the apartment at Salmon Creek when I was in third grade. Yeah, I had to in third grade because it was right after Hank and mom split up. And uh, I was over at my aunt's house one night, staying the night over there because we were playing video games. She had a Nintendo and all that. And uh, woke up in the middle of the night hearing glass breaking. Look out in the kitchen, and there's dishes flying all over the place, smashing into the walls the whole nine yards. We all run for the front door, and there's glasses and plates and silverware and everything else flying at us. We're dodging it as we're headed for the front door. We get out the door, and we hear something shatter against the door as we pull it closed behind us. And then everything went absolutely silent. We crack the door open and look back inside, and there's absolutely no mess. Wow. We never did figure out what had happened exactly. I mean, there's no way that five people would have the same hallucination. But that's one idea that had been suggested. And you continued to have experiences. Even the black-eyed children you saw again, correct? I've seen them five or six times throughout my life. Wow. Including one here in East Texas. But there were things that happened before you saw them again, including this poltergeist activity that kind of was erased and everyone in the house saw it. Yeah, all of us saw it. And when we opened the door, we expected to find a huge mess and there was nothing. Everything was exactly where it was supposed to be. Do you believe that a person is a catalyst? Like these activities might be happening around us constantly, but it requires a catalyst for people to see it. Do you believe that you may be the catalyst in this situation? In other words, you're the conduit for this stuff, even though this stuff is probably happening happening everywhere, multi-dimensions. We'll get, we'll get into like what you think it is or what you feel that you know it is. But do you think that you may have been the catalyst for people seeing these things? I actually have wondered that myself on several occasions. And I think as I learned and grew, I kind of faded away from that for lack of a better way to put it. Not so much being the catalyst, but I can still feel it going on around me. Even if there's not any anything for anybody else to see, I can still feel the energies around me. So after the, the poltergeist-type incident that was experienced by your family, what happened next? Oh, let's see. I think I was about... 12 or so? I'm not 100% sure. We moved to Aberdeen and we're living in the big blue house. And uh, I heard something scratching around inside the crawl space in my bedroom. And when I opened it up to see what was going on, what was scratching in there, against my mom's orders, of course, she assumed it was a rat or something. I opened it up and I could see, like, handprints like somebody had been kneeling down and had their hands flat on the floor in the dust and they were adult sized hands but there was nobody in the crawl space anywhere that I could find just those two handprints in that same house my mom fell down the stairs and uh, she said that she felt something underneath her as uh, the first right before the first impact, like a cushion of air underneath her. So it, was, it wasn't it was something that pushed her. It was something that was 
help him catch her. Right. Wow. Did you ever have, during that time, did you have elaborate nightmares or elaborate dreams? I've had elaborate dreams and nightmares most of my life. And is it associative to a lot of the things you've experienced? I mean, I'm sure you had nightmares that first time you were dragged across the room. Um, Did you even go back to the bedroom the next night? I did. Okay. But only because my stepdad was a real jerk about it. Were you able to keep the light on? uh, Yeah, I kept the light on and I kept the, the bathroom for the house. You had to go through my room to get to it. So I kept the bathroom light on and my bedroom light on all night. Regardless of how much he complained about the power bill. Radio show host Tiffany Mack's interest in the paranormal was ignited by very real experiences that occurred throughout her life. The phenomena that began in her early childhood has continued to this day. What was the first time you had a... uh, Was it when you were a little girl? Did you have a profound experience when you were a little girl? Well, there were there were multiple experiences. Um, one of the ones that really stands out with me is um, I was about five or six years old, and I was at my grandparents' house, which they lived about 40 minutes from where we were. So we would go there every weekend, large family. Um, my grandfather was um, military, so we grew up sort of Air Force brats, all of us. Um, and every weekend we would go and spend time with each other. I had about 30 first cousins on that side, and we would play, uh, running around the house, running out in the streets and just have a good old time. But I do remember there was a, one of the first times that I had an experience that was a little shocking was uh, when I was about five or six years old. I went upstairs into my grandparents' um, top floor. There were three bedrooms, one bathroom. And um, this is a house that my my mom and her family had lived in for probably about 15 years. Um, and it had been a new home. Uh, I don't think there was anyone that had lived there before. Uh, no deaths on the property that I'm aware of, just to put that out there. Um, so I went upstairs and, and I was hiding. We were playing hide and go seek with my cousins. And at the end of the hallway, there was a tall floor to ceiling mirror. And I remember looking into the mirror and thinking, huh, that doesn't quite look like me. It looks like me, but it's not me. And I remember having pigtails in my hair that day. And my the person in front of me was a little girl my age, but her hair was down. And I remember thinking, what is going on? So, of course, I, you know, flipped around, ran down the stairs, and my mom and my aunts were all huddled in the kitchen cooking dinner. And, um, and I was a little freaked out. And I said, Mom, there's a little girl upstairs. And I remember them all just sort of looking at me like, uh, which one of your cousins is it? And, and I said, it's not one of my cousins. It's somebody else. I said, it looks like me, but it's not me. So everybody went upstairs and there was nothing there. Um, and I hated going upstairs in this house. There was really no reason that I, I didn't like it. But my entire um, childhood and teen years, I hated going up there. Um, but anyway, so that, that little girl was shocking to me. Um, and then later in life, I, I had a, another connection and I believe that it was the same girl who'd come back to visit. So you were, okay. So as a, as a kid, you're exposed to 
fiction, but at the same time now you're having, and like a lot of us have. But not at that age. At that age. Yeah, at that age I was too young. Okay. So at that age you had yet to see any horror movies or read any Stephen King, but you did have an experience. Now at the time, did you know what a ghost was? Did you did you think the little girl was a ghost? What if you can recall what you were thinking back she then? She looked solid. The girl looked solid to me. Um, it was not something that I would have automatically thought, oh my gosh, there's a ghost upstairs. All I knew was there was a little girl who was not me standing between me and the mirror. Um, and, and at this point, I had never... I was too young. I had never seen any real scary movies. I was never allowed to watch anything beyond G films. Um, My parents were very protective of me in that way. Um, And I I didn't really have anything to relate it to. It was not a dark figure. It was a little girl and it looked just like me. It's just, she wasn't. And so how long after that did you experience another anomaly? Um, you know, I, at about 10 or 11 years old, I, I got this book called, um, out of body experiences, a handbook. And this book was fairly new. I found it in my library. It was written in 1981. Um, and I just found it really interesting because I had been dreaming these very realistic dreams and I could put myself in the position to control the dreams, or at least I felt that I could. So this was just a book that I checked out at the library and, um, I ended up, they let me keep it. The library was just getting rid of books and I I thought it was great. And I looked at it and I started to try to, um, control my body, my mind at that age, about eight or nine years old, maybe 10. And I started to have what I guess you would call out of body experiences, um, around that age. And it was very shocking to me. It was exciting. Um, and it was definitely something that I tried to explain to my friends and my family and they just were like, huh, that's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Go on, go read your books. So you, and once again, there's so many of us out there that had this fascination as kids and, you know, it's more common than people think it's, it seems to be a subject matter that most kids just get completely blown away by and that they can explore. I think it's, um, it's a way for a kid to have control over something, to explore something that's uh, less monotonous than their everyday life at school or wherever. But not everyone is having an experience where they see things manifest in, in reality. And so you that must have been pretty profound for you as a, as a little girl, right? Seeing another little girl. You didn't forget it. No, I never did. And in fact, I, I remembered it again when I was about 15. I had a dream of this little girl, and I asked my mom, I said, did, do you remember me ever saying something about a little girl being upstairs that looked like me but wasn't me? And she said, yeah. And at first, I really thought that maybe I had imagined it. Um, this is me at 15 looking back and asking my mom again. So um, actually, the night before I turned 15, I had a, a dream. I was sharing a bedroom with my little sister who was five years younger than me. And uh, she and I um, 
you know, went to bed, say, 8, 30, 9 o'clock. I, I, I was still going to bed fairly early because I was running and I was swimming and I was just really exerting myself daily. Um, but the night before I turned 15, I had a dream or what I thought was a dream. I sat up in my bed and my grandmother was sitting on the edge of my bed. And she told me, you know, I just wanted to say that I love you. I'm proud of you. And everything that you are doing is just wondrous. Everything. Keep it all up. Run, swim, compete, um, learn, and, and just do the best that you can. And tell your mother that I am appreciative of all that she has done for you. And so, of course, I thought that was a wonderful dream. So I get up in the morning and my mom is making breakfast and she's a little sort of shaken. And I said, Mom, I had this fantastic dream. And she goes, I had a fantastic dream. And I was like, OK, let's hear your dream. And she said, well, I had a dream that your grandmother called me on the phone and said, I'm so proud of you for raising my granddaughter with such grace and enthusiasm. And I just really appreciate all that you've done for her. Keep up the good work. And so just to clarify, and I don't mean to interrupt, but your grandmother had passed before this? This, this was my, my biological father's mother. So it was not my mom's mom who was still alive. This was my dad's mother who had passed away when I was 12. Okay. So we both had the same dream except that she had called my mom on the phone. And then in my dream, she was sitting at the edge of my bed. So it was, it was pretty shocking that uh, we would both have pretty much the same experience the night before I turned 15. Now, I don't think that there was anything um, significant about the age, but I could be mistaken. And that, and that is something to notice for sure. Now, you both had that same experience. But what was it after that? So from the time that you were a little girl, you saw the other little girl, you had this dream of your grandmother, now you're in your teens, when did it really hit you that there was something else? You know, honestly, I'd, I'd seen a lot of different shadow beings. I've, I'd seen things move on their own. I've felt presence in my room in other places. Um, my aunts seemed to always have a haunted house and we would always joke about it because I, I could never sleep in her homes because I was always being watched or touched or there was shadow beings in the room. So that was a, a challenge. Um, but honestly, it took me until I was about 32 before I really realized what was going on in this bizarre life that I leave. So, you know, you had mentioned the girl earlier. Did you ever see her again? Actually, yes, I did. Um, when I was pregnant with my second daughter, um, it was about two and a half, three years between my first daughter and my second. Um, I was pregnant with my, my youngest and Madeline, who's my oldest, was laying on the bed beside me. She always slept with me. My husband worked night shift, so he was never home at night. So she slept with me, and I woke up with this feeling of, of movement on the end of the bed. So I look up, and of course, there's, there's some ambient light in the room, and I can see that there's a little girl sitting at the end of the bed. Of course, I think it's my daughter, Madeline, who is about 
almost three at the time. So I said, Madeline, lay down. You're going to fall off the bed. No answer. No movement. I was like, Maddie, you need to lay down. You're going to fall off the bed. No answer. So I finally said, Maddie, lay down. And she, the little girl looked at me and said, I'm not Maddie, mommy. And that freaked me out. I, I was like, okay, I don't have time for this. Just lay down. So I flipped the light on and the girl's gone. And my daughter is dead asleep. Well, um, a lot of times the ones that I've seen, I don't think that they're the same being. I think that there's been different beings throughout my life. Um, I do remember having one episode where I was in a hotel room. And this is why I say I don't believe that one place was haunted and I just happened to be there. I feel like something, things have been following me or or maybe I can see into the veil or through the veil, maybe. Um, but I was in a, a hotel um, driving down from Kentucky to our home in Destin. We have a, a beach house in Destin, Florida. And we were in this hotel. My daughter and my husband at the time, Chris, was they were dead asleep. We were exhausted from driving. And there was a man standing in the corner. And of, of course, I couldn't see details, but it was the figure of a man. And I wake up and then Madeline wakes up and she says, Mama, just tell the bad man to go away. And, and that shocked me because now I have somebody who is witnessing things with me. And she is confirming that there's someone else there. My husband, he sleeps through anything. And I, I mean, really, he just thought that I was just sort of wacko. So I never, never really spoke about it to him. But with my daughter confirming some of these sightings, it was um, shocking that she would be able to see him too. But it made me feel that it was more some type of familial, I don't know, a, a gift. So, you know, seeing the little girl, the visit from your grandmother, uh, seeing shadow beings here and there throughout the years, but was there ever a truly, what you would identify as a truly malevolent presence? And when was the first time that that happened? Well, there was one episode which happened a few years ago. Um, that was extremely terrifying for me. It, it shook me to my core. I wake up middle of the night in my bedroom and there was a hole in the wall. And out of the hole starts swarming this, um, these beings that were probably two to three feet tall. And they had no hair. They were really, really skinny. And I wouldn't even say that they reminded me of anything that I'd ever seen before. They were very uh, diminutive, very scrawny, skinny beings, big heads. And they were whispering, and I can hear them whispering. And they kept saying, is she awake? Is she awake? And then they would go, she's awake. She's awake. She's awake. She's awake. Is she awake? And these things were coming out of the wall there must have been dozens and dozens of them crawling out of the wall. They looked like ants swarming from, 
from a nest in the ground and and they were going all over the ceiling, the walls, underneath the bed, and they were trying to come up and touch my body on the bed. I've never felt that terrified in my entire life as I felt in those moments. And I flipped on the light. And this was recently, maybe a few years ago, and I had this this new boyfriend who's now my my husband, and I was telling him what was happening, and he flips on the light, and I was like, no, don't turn on the light. And he's like, why not? I said, because they can't get back into the hole. So I made him turn the light back off, and they started, um, they were, they were like huddled underneath of my bed. And once they realized that the light was going to be turned on again, they started running back for the hole in the wall. And it was, it was like just a swarm of these beings and they scared the crap out of me. I was just so scared that these things would stay under the bed and would get me after the light went back off and I was supposed to be going back to bed. But, now, um, your, your husband was there. Mm-hmm. Did he experience anything? You know, no, he, he didn't see anything. Uh, he didn't feel anything. There was no evidence of anything. There was no hole in the wall. You know, it was just one of those things that, that I saw that nobody else could see. Welcome back to Off to the Witch. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and I want to thank you for joining us tonight. It's safe to say that we are not alone, either in the universe or in our current dimension. I don't suggest to fear every shadow on the wall, but if you should see or hear something strange in the night, it might just be watching you, waiting for you to fall asleep. And fortunately, it'll leave the rest of us with a good story. Until next time, try to enjoy the daylight.